This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot O-R-G. Recording by Christy Nowak. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Five, Part Eight. The Restoration had produced no effect on the temper of the Taunton men. They had still continued to celebrate the anniversary of the happy day on which the siege laid to their town by the royal army had been raised, and their stubborn attachment to the old cause had excited so much fear and resentment at Whitehall that, by royal order, their moat had been filled up and their wall demolished to the foundation. The puritanical spirit had been kept up to the height among them by the precepts and example of one of the most celebrated of the dissenting clergy, Joseph Aline. Aline was the author of a tract entitled An Alarm to the Unconverted, which is still popular both in England and in America. From the jail to which he was consigned by the victorious cavaliers, he addressed to his loving friends at Taunton many epistles breathing the spirit of a truly heroic piety. His frame soon sank under the effects of study, toil, and persecution, but his memory was long cherished with exceeding love and reverence by those whom he had exhorted and catechized. The children of the men who, forty years before, had manned the ramparts of Taunton against the royalists, now welcomed Monmouth with transports of joy and affection. Every door and window was adorned with wreaths of flowers. No man appeared in the streets without wearing in his hat a green bough, the badge of the popular cause. Damsels of the best families in the town wove colors for the insurgents. One flag in particular was embroidered gorgeously with emblems of royal dignity and was offered to Monmouth by a train of young girls. He received the gift with the winning courtesy which distinguished him. The lady who headed the procession presented him also with a small Bible of great price. He took it with a show of reverence. Quote, I come, he said, to defend the truths contained in this book and to seal them, if it must be so, with my blood. But while Monmouth enjoyed the applause of the multitude, he could not but perceive, with concern and apprehension, that the higher classes were, with scarcely an exception, hostile to his undertaking, and that no rising had taken place except in the counties where he had himself appeared. He had been assured by agents, who professed to have derived their information from Wildman, that the whole Whig aristocracy was eager to take arms. Nevertheless, more than a week had now elapsed since the Blue Standard had been set up at Lyme. Day laborers, small farmers, shopkeepers, apprentices, dissenting preachers had flocked to the rebel camp, but not a single peer, baronet, or knight, not a single member of the House of Commons, and scarcely any esquire of sufficient note to have ever been in the commission of the peace had joined the invaders. Ferguson, who ever since the death of Charles had been Monmouth's evil angel, had a suggestion ready. The duke had put himself into a false position by declining the royal title. Had he declared himself sovereign of England, his cause would have worn a show of legality. At present, it was impossible to reconcile his declaration with the principles of the Constitution. It was clear that either Monmouth or his uncle was the rightful king. 
Monmouth did not venture to pronounce himself the rightful king, and yet denied that his uncle was so. Those who fought for James fought for the only person who ventured to claim the throne, and were therefore clearly in their duty according to the laws of the realm. Those who fought for Monmouth fought for some unknown polity, which was to be set up by a convention not yet in existence. None could wonder that men of high rank and ample fortune stood aloof from an enterprise which threatened with destruction that system in the permanence of which they were deeply interested. If the duke would assert his legitimacy and assume the crown, he would at once remove this objection. The question would cease to be a question between the old constitution and a new constitution. It would be merely a question of hereditary right between two princes. On such grounds as these, Ferguson, almost immediately after the landing, had earnestly pressed the duke to proclaim himself king, and Gray had seconded Ferguson. Monmouth had been very willing to take this advice, but Wade and other Republicans had been refractory, and their chief, with his usual pliability, had yielded to their arguments. At Taunton, the subject was revived. Monmouth talked in private with the dissentients, assured them that he saw no other way of attaining the support of any portion of the aristocracy, and succeeded in exhorting their reluctant consent. On the morning of the 20th of June, he was proclaimed in the marketplace of Taunton. His followers repeated his new title with affectionate delight, but, as some confusion might have arisen if he had been called King James II, they commonly used the strange appellation of King Monmouth, and by this name their unhappy favorite was often mentioned in the western counties within the memory of persons still living. Within twenty-four hours after he had assumed the regal title, he put forth several proclamations headed with his sign manual. By one of these he set a price on the head of his rival. Another declared the Parliament, then sitting at Westminster, an unlawful assembly, and commanded the members to disperse. A third forbade the people to pay taxes to the usurper. A fourth pronounced Albemarle a traitor. Albemarle transmitted these proclamations to London merely as specimens of folly and impertinence. They produced no effect except wonder and contempt, nor had Monmouth any reason to think that the assumption of royalty had improved his position. Only a week had elapsed since he had solemnly bound himself not to take the crown till a free parliament should have acknowledged his rights. By breaking that engagement he had incurred the imputation of levity, not of perfidy. The class which he had hoped to conciliate still stood aloof. The reasons which prevented the great Whig lords and gentlemen from recognizing him as their king were at least as strong as those which had prevented them from rallying around him as their captain general. They disliked indeed the person, the religion, and the politics of James. But James was no longer young. His eldest daughter was justly popular. She was attached to the Reformed faith. She was married to a prince who was the hereditary chief of the Protestants of the continent, to a prince who had been bred in a republic, and whose sentiments were supposed to be such as became a constitutional king. Was it wise to incur the horrors of civil war for the mere chance of being able to effect immediately what nature would, without bloodshed, without any violation of law, effect in all probability before many years should have expired? Perhaps there might be reasons for pulling down James, but what reason could be given for setting up Monmouth? 
To exclude a prince from the throne on account of unfitness was, of course, agreeable to Whig principles, but on no principle could it be proper to exclude rightful heirs who were admitted to be not only blameless, but eminently qualified for the highest public trust. That Monmouth was legitimate, nay, that he thought himself legitimate, intelligent men could not believe. He was therefore not merely an usurper, but an usurper of the worst sort, an impostor. If he made out any semblance of a case, he could do so only by means of forgery and perjury. All honest and sensible persons were unwilling to see a fraud which, if practiced to obtain an estate, would have been punished with the scourge and the pillory, rewarded with the English crown. To the old nobility of the realm it seemed insupportable that the bastard of Lucy Walters should be set up high above the lawful descendants of the Fitzalans and de Veres. Those who were capable of looking forward must have seen that if Monmouth should succeed in overpowering the existing government, there would still remain a war between him and the House of Orange, a war which might last longer and produce more misery than the War of the Roses, a war which might probably break up the Protestants of Europe into hostile parties, might arm England and Holland against each other, and might make both those countries an easy prey to France. The opinion, therefore, of almost all the leading Whigs seems to have been that Monmouth's enterprise could not fail to end in some great disaster to the nation, but that, on the whole, his defeat would be a less disaster than his victory. End of Part 8